You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 as we continue our series through this book. Um, that, as we said last week, is one of the, the darkest uh, and yet also a most beautiful book in the Bible. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. Uh, it's one that's going to evoke different emotions in us that we haven't felt in some time. And it's, it's a book that's a little different than other books of the Bible. Most books of the Bible have a positive function. This one tends to be a little bit more negative. Um, and, and really its goal is to bring us to a place where we feel a little bit weak, we feel a little bit, a little bit needy, a little bit uncomfortable, um, so that ultimately it'll, it'll show us just how much we truly need this Jesus um, that we keep singing about. Um, I do want to say again to the guests, if it's your first time, welcome. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and I'm personally so glad uh, to have you visit with us uh, today. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2. Um, also want to mention this before we read. Every Wednesday, 12 o'clock, open invitation to all the members of the church, or even if you're not a member and you're interested in this, we are uh, participating uh, as a church in what I'm calling team sermon prep. Um, and the idea is, as a pastor, I feel called to preach uh, like a certain text to a certain people, to you. My call is not to preach to any other church or to some people out there. Uh, my goal is each week to, to come before you with a text and say, this is the word I believe God has for our church. And to help me better do that, um, I want members of the church, people in this church, to come as they are um, with their background and whatever, whatever's going on in their life and us wrestle through and pray through the text together, which which will help me better, I feel like, teach messages to this church. So if that interests you, we'll send out a text uh, probably tomorrow or Tuesday just reminding you of that. If you want to come, we'll be out here in the foyer. We'll have sandwiches, have chips. That's free. Just reply. Let us know that, that you want food, and we'll be sure to have it for you. So with that, let's stand together out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm reading from the NIV translation, and if it interests you, the notes for the message today are on the YouVersion Bible app, as they are every Sunday, and you can grab those there. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1, I'll read through verse 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind still got me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing tree. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delight of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I thank you for those who are 
here and listening online, I do pray that, Holy Spirit, that you will take my best attempt to teach this. And you will use this word, which is active and living, and minister to each heart in a unique way that is for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So said the theologian and mathematician Blaise Pascal. And he's right, isn't he? I mean, if you think about this past week, pretty much everything that you did, you did because you wanted to be happy. From the food that you chose to eat to the shower that you stayed in a little bit longer because the kids were fighting outside the bathroom to the temperature that you set the air on in your house to the clothes you wore, the music that you listened to. I mean, on and on we could go. Almost everything that you have done this past week and will do this week is all for the purpose of trying to make yourself happy. So, though we all come in here from different places today, that's one thing we have in common. I want to be happy, and you want to be happy, right? Every human is searching for happiness. This is why if you Google, how can I be, the number one response on the Google autocorrect will be, how can I be happy? Actually, if you pushed enter, it would produce 5,290,000,000 results to try to show you how you can be happy. So literally, happiness is something that we are all searching for, and yet by and large, as a society, we're still pretty unhappy. Uh, Listen to these stats. I've shared them before, but worth sharing again. According to the Harvard Medical Journal, one in 10 Americans right now over the age of 12 are clinically depressed. Over 40 brand name antidepressant drugs are on the market, and in the past 15 years, the use of those medications have increased by 400%. Needless to say, despite all of our technology and our therapy and our money and our medications, in a nation that was built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it feels in many ways like chasing after the wind. Like we're on a treadmill. Like, man, I am running and I am toiling and I am working so hard to finally get to this place of happiness. And yet, we feel like we're making no progress. You look back and you're like, I'm really not any happier now than I was this time last year. And I would say this isn't just true of like those people out in the world. Like that's true of us. Behind that smile and that, how are you? Oh, good, brother. Better than I deserve, right? Behind all of that is really a people who live with this low-grade sense of anxiety and depression that has become the norm. And so the question today is, how can I be happy? How can I be happy in a world like this, in the midst of fears and troubles, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of suffering and marital issues and and death and pain and, and conflict and disappointment, how can I actually find true and lasting happiness? That's the question that the teacher is asking in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In his quest for happiness... He starts, and actually in chapter 1, he he says, you know, I'm going to try to figure out how can I be happy? How can I find fulfillment? How can I find satisfaction? And the first place that he actually goes to is the University of Jerusalem, 
We see this in, in chapter 1, actually, in, in verse 12, because he thinks that if he grows in knowledge, then he will grow in happiness. He, he says the following, actually verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And so in verse 16, what was the result? He said, I increased in wisdom more than anybody who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned this. It's all chasing after the wind. Look at verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The teacher says, hey, the first place I'm going to try to look for happiness is in wisdom. Right? And so he says, I, I'm going to go to the, the greatest colleges. I'm going to sit under the greatest professors. I'm going to pass all the big exams. I'm going to try to figure out the deeper meaning of life. Because oftentimes when we are suffering, what's one of the questions that we ask? Why? Why is this happening? He thought, okay, well, well, if I can figure out the why, if I can solve the great mysteries, if I can answer some of life's hardest problems, then surely with all of my wisdom and all of my knowledge, I'll be happy. You just got to read all the right books, right? Here's another book. Here's another website. Here's another test to take. Get that. You'll be good to go. He says, actually, it's all chasing after the wind. Actually, he says, you can get in the best schools. You can take another assessment. You can try to learn more about yourself and about the world, all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, he says, what you're going to discover is actually ignorance really is bliss. In verse 18, again, he says, because with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more you learn, the more grief you actually experience. So his first quest fails. Human wisdom and knowledge will not make us happier. So what does the teacher do next? He doesn't give up. I mean, he, he is persistent. He continues on his search. After his first attempt fails, he decides to chase down another path to happiness. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he said to himself, Come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure and try to find out what is good. It sounds like me, my freshman year in college. I'm just going to throw off all of the you know, other stuff out there. If it tastes good, if it feels good, if it looks good, I'm going to run after it. Right? But that is the way to happiness. This is what the teacher is doing here. He's saying wisdom and knowledge didn't make me happy, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop out of college, and I'm going to run my own little personal you know, experiment where I can see can happiness actually be found in doing whatever I want. Like, is happiness actually found in pleasure, in chasing after my heart's desire? That's the question he's asking. I and mean, it doesn't take him very long to realize the answer to that question is no. Actually, it doesn't lead to happiness. Again, verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I'll try to find out what is good, but this also proved to be meaningless. If you remember from last week, the Hebrew word here for meaningless is the word hevel. And does anybody remember what, what's a good translation for the word hevel? What does it actually mean? It means smoke. It means vapor. And so whenever the, the teacher says that he found out that pleasure was meaningless, uh, a better way of actually translating that is he was saying pleasure is elusive. Like you can't hold on to it. It, it vanishes like a mist. Even if you do obtain some measure of pleasure, he says it will not last for long. The pleasures of this world, he says, are fleeting and therefore they're unfulfilling. Maybe some of you hear that and you're like, ah, he just didn't look to the right places. Like, if you look for pleasure in the right places here, right, like, like surely, like you go to the right place, then you're going to find true happiness. 
But actually, I mean, before you come to that conclusion, notice just all of the different pleasures the teacher tried. In verse 2, because knowledge made him sad, naturally he was like, well, I want to start laughing. And so the first pleasure he looked to was comedy. He looked to laughter. He said, I'm just going to go watch Dumb and Dumber again, right? Or I'm just going to try to find some hilarious YouTube videos to watch. Or I'm going to surround myself with really, really happy people who just make me laugh all of the time. He says, if I will do that, right, then surely I will be happy. But what does he conclude in verse 2? Look again. Laughter, he said, is madness. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because... I mean, just to be clear, God is not against laughter. In fact, the the teacher in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, he's going to go on to say, there's actually a time to laugh. Um, He's going to say in in Proverbs 17, 14, a cheerful heart is like good medicine. And isn't that true? I was at the downtown festival last night, saw several of you there, got a chance to watch Dancing Billy. Anybody see Dancing Billy going down the street yesterday? It was really good, a lot of fun. I laughed a lot last night, and that was good for my heart. That's what the scripture says. So, so what is the teacher saying here whenever he says that laughter is madness? Well, what he's actually saying, he's not saying it's bad to laugh. What he is saying is it's bad whenever you try to make laughter your way of life. In other words, it's bad when you try to use comedy to mask your sorrow. It's bad to begin to try to use jokes or or laughter in order to try to convince yourself that you're not actually hurting, to not deal with what's really going on in you or outside the world. The teacher says whenever you live that way, you want to know what it is? It's madness. It's insane. He says to pretend like everything is okay in your life when it's not okay will eventually drive you crazy. So important that we hear that because for some of you in here, especially in the church, it's how you have been taught to cope with, with pain and suffering and loss. Just put a big smile on your face and everything. Just, don't worry, be happy. If it was that easy, like we would all be happy, right? Just, just smile a little more. Like that's how some of us have been taught to deal with pain. When things get too tense, they start getting a little sad, make a joke, make light of it, right? Pretend like everything is okay. This is, you know, something we see in counseling a lot to where you'll be counseling with somebody and they'll be talking about a really horrific event that happened in their life and laugh as they're saying. Like they'll be talking about it with a big smile on their face. Jeff Schulte says, uh, he's a guy who's mentored us, he says if it's hysterical, it's historical. Meaning that if someone's talking about something bad that happened in their life, and they're kind of, ha, 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 and they're kind of laughing about it, it's like, it's not really they've moved past it. They just feel real nervous, and it's starting to mess with them a little bit, and they don't want to feel the pain. They don't want to feel the sorrow. And they don't want it to be awkward, so they just kind of make light of it. Does that make sense? And, and though like that seems like something that's okay to do, what the teacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes is this is a crazy way to live. Like, if you do this long enough, it will make you mad. I think about Robin Williams. Anybody in here remember the movie Jumanji? Huh? Anybody? Got some Jumanji fans? We have a picture of Robin Williams we can put on the screen. This is a man who brought so much joy into our living room to the medium of laughter. And yet behind this infectious smile was this deep and shakable sadness that eventually led him to committing suicide. And as I thought about that this past week, I thought, man, again, the Bible is clear. Laughter is a good thing. But at the end of the day, to embrace a life of comedy, the teacher says, will eventually make you mad. It will drive you insane. It will not satisfy. Comedy just won't do it. 
funny YouTube videos just won't do it. And so the teacher says, all right, what's next on the list? What will I do next? What can I look to for happiness? Well, he goes on and he tries a little fine wine. In verse 3, he said, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So the teacher says, look, what I am realizing is that life is short. Like it's a vapor. It's a mist. I talk to anybody who's in their 80s, right? They'll even tell you a little bit back and say, like, man, it was just yesterday I was in high school. Like life flies by. And the teacher's like, that's kind of depressing. And so what do I do when I get depressed? I know, I'll just self-medicate. In this case, it's wine. It could be drugs, it could be pills, it could be whatever you want. But he's thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take in some alcohol. I'm going to try to cheer myself with wine, and surely that will make me happy. However, what does he discover? That though alcohol, like laughter, isn't bad in and of itself, the problem is the best that can do is numb your pain for a minute. But eventually the pain comes back. It can numb your pain for a second, but it can never actually make you happy. And so he says, okay, well, that's not going to do it. So so what do I do next? Maybe some of you type A personalities in here are like, I know what he should do. Like losers are the one who uses alcohol and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Like like if he's going to be something special, he, he needs to set goals for his life. He needs to try something great. He needs to pursue, you know, something big. He needs to accomplish something magnificent. If he'll do that, if he'll like knock out his goals, then he's going to really feel good about himself. And he says, I've already been there. And I've done that. And I'm telling you, that's meaningless too. In verse 4, look what he says. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, water, grow, uh, water groves of flourishing trees. Right? What, what is he saying here? He's saying, look, I have accomplished more than any of you will ever accomplish. I've accomplished more than any of you could ever even dream of accomplishing. Did you realize, uh, think about that, I thought about this this past week. In the Old Testament, the temple was like central to the people of Israel. Like it was it. You know how long it took for Israel to build the temple? Seven years. That's how big and magnificent it was. Anybody know how long it took for all the people to build Solomon's mansion? Ten years. It took, his house was so big, it took three more years to build Solomon's mansion that did the actual temple for the people of Israel. I mean, this guy is off the charts successful. He is great. You look at his life and you're like, man, that guy has accomplished much. He says, yes, I have more than you ever will. I've, but I'm telling you, he says, it, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't do for you what you think that it will. And again, let me be clear here. Building things, just like laughter and just like wine, are not bad in and of themselves. The scripture never says that's wrong. The question you should be asking today is not, am I building But the question is, what am I building? And why am I building it? Notice all this language. uh, There's all this me, myself, and language in chapter 2. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I made gardens. I made this elaborate watering system. See, the problem is not that, that, that Solomon wanted to build. The problem is that he was building for himself. He was driven by a selfish ambition to be great. And he says, man, I got to the top of that mountain, and it didn't satisfy. Smoke. So where does he turn next? He turns to power. He turns to control. He turns to influence. In verse 7, 
He says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Why would someone ever brag about having slaves? Like, why would he put that in here? Just so you know how powerful that he was. Just so you know, this is a man who had control and influence. He said, I just snapped my, if I didn't want to work that day, man, I just did whatever I want. I snapped my fingers and I began to tell people what to do, where to go. This is a man who had incredible power and control and influence. And yet he says, that didn't satisfy. So what does he do next? Look again in verse seven, he says, I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. Look at this. I also owned more herds and flocks, which apparently was a big deal back then. I I had more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I also acquired male and female singers. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about possessions. He's talking about money. He's talking about toys and gadgets. He says, man, I was so incredibly wealthy. If I wanted it, I could buy it. I didn't have to sit there and save up for it. I already had enough to get what I wanted, when I wanted, the newest technology, the new phone, the mansion, the vacation home, the, the, the rides, right, the crib, the clothes, the entertainment. He said, if I wanted my favorite band to come and perform for me, I'd just call them up, I'd pay them whatever they wanted to pay, and then they would entertain me. Like, that's how wealthy this guy is. And he says, well, that didn't satisfy either. So I mean, he's just running through the list. You see this? Like, this is a calculated experiment. So he's going through all these things. He's like, man, none of this is working. So where does he finally turn to look for happiness? What pleasure does he run to? Well, he runs where many in our culture run, to sex. It says in verse 8 that he also had a harem. A harem. Which, which means that he had many women and concubines. You say, well, what is a concubine? Well, in short, it's a sex slave. It's a woman who has obtained for sexual property to meet the needs of her master. And just so you know, Solomon didn't just have one. The scripture tells us in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's incredible. I mean, you've never met anybody like this. Here's Solomon, right? Despite the fact the Bible is clear that sex is meant to be like this sacred fire within the boundaries of marriage... Between a man and a woman, here is a man who said, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and I'm going to have sex with as many women as I want, however I want, whenever I want. And isn't this the temptation that we feel today through pornography? So how in the world could someone have sex with that many people? It's something that many people, not just again outside the church, but inside the church are tempted to do every day through just the click of a button. Not just men, but women as well. To try to find this false form of connection where somebody looks through the screen and says, you're the man. Even if it's just a fantasy. Or looks through and says, girl, I love you. You're so special to me. This false form of intimacy where we get to, without anybody else watching, have sex however we want, whenever we want, and with whoever we want. Whatever color, shape, size, all right there, bam. And what our culture actually tells us is, hey, if you feel that urge, go. Like that's where happiness is found. Check it out. Hey, it's just sex. It's just sex. Like go for it. What the teacher says is ultimately it's not going to give you what you think. At the end of the day, he says you could... You could physically hook up with as many people as you want. And he said, take it from me. It will not satisfy. 
It's going to be fun for the night, but eventually the morning is going to come. And what do you discover in the morning? He says this, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, listen to this. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was hevel. It was smoke. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. We would do very well to hear this today. Comedy, sex, alcohol, drugs, shopping, entertainment, great accomplishments, Reaching all of your goals, he says, man, I experienced it all, and I was still left wanting more. It reminded me of that John Rockefeller quote. You've heard us say it before. John Rockefeller was America's first billionaire. Anybody remember whenever someone says, how much more do you need to be satisfied? How did he respond? You remember? Just a little bit more. How much, how much more do you need to be happy? Just a little bit more. What Rockefeller is saying is what the teacher has already told us from personal experience, and it's this. Please hear me. When you look for happiness and things under the sun, you will discover that happiness and contentment are always just beyond your reach. And that the more we get, the more we will want. And therefore, grumbling will replace gratitude. Greed will begin to replace generosity. And in the process, here's what happens, guys. When you begin to feverishly pursue all of these things under the sun to give you some sort of fulfillment and satisfaction, what happens is as your appetite for these things continues to increase, your pleasure will continue to decrease. And you will come to a place where you will need that thing or that substance or whatever it is more and more and more and more and more. And I'll need another hit. I'll need another trophy. I'll need another sexual experience. I'll need another swipe of the card. And eventually the pursuit of pleasure will lead you into a full-blown addiction. And what happens when you're in addiction? You begin to do what you do, not because it makes you happy to do it, but because you will be miserable if you don't do it. And what Ecclesiastes is saying here is, man, that's why you need to pay attention you need to listen to what I am saying. Because we live in a world right now that says, listen guys, the more you get, the happier you'll be. That's the message from the world. But the teacher says, I can tell you from personal experience that the pursuit of pleasure does not equal happiness. Let me say that again. The pursuit of pleasure does not equal happiness. In his book, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While We or While People Feel Worse, Greg Easterbrook says the following, We have more of everything today except happiness. This is because, as research proves, the more we have, the unhappier we become. Maybe this helps explain why the 21st century is an age of anxiety where people struggle more with mental illness now than ever before. I think of the work of Alex Tocqueville, who wrote what many consider to be a defining work in our nation, he came and spent some time in America and kind of, you know, was, was watching our behavior. And here was his conclusion. He said, a strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. Strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. Keep in mind, he was talking about America back in the 1800s. He went on commenting about the American belief that prosperity, if we could just have more, would quench our yearning for happiness. And he said this, such a project is doomed to fail because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. 
This is what Solomon discovered for himself, guys. It's the reality that you can try as hard as you can to squeeze all of the pleasures out of the experiences in your life, and you will finally realize there is nothing to be gained from living life under the sun. That pleasure pursued for pleasure's sake will never satisfy your soul. Some of you say, wow, this is a depressing sermon. Well, remember what I told you last week. The teacher is not trying to depress you. He's trying to rescue you. In our time this past week, I think it was about eight of us that showed up for the team summer prep, Andy Runyon was talking about Ecclesiastes 2, and he said, you know, one of the reasons that I have grown to like this book is because it's clear that the teacher, what he's trying to do is he's trying to save us from keeping up with the Joneses. He's trying to say, look, I made it to the top of whatever mountain you're trying to get to. You won't ever get there. But even if you could, let me just tell you, I'm trying to save you all of the work of doing all of these things and chasing after all these pleasures that everybody around you in your your workplace, your neighborhood, on social media is telling you you have to have to be happy. And I'm trying to save you from all of that work because you're finally going to get there and you're going to realize it didn't do for you what everybody said it's going to do for you. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's trying not to depress us, but rescue us. Anybody here know who Tom Brady is? Tom Brady? Heard of that guy? Never heard of him. <laughs> Said the football player. Uh, Tom Brady is a star quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's won seven Super Bowls, which is more than anybody else, and he is a really good-looking man. So um, take that for what it's worth. In an interview with Steve Croft from 60 Minutes, this just kind of came out of the overflow of his heart. They're in this interview, and he asked this question. Out loud. Why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I've reached my goal, my dream, and yet I think there's got to be more than this. It's not all it's cracked up to be. The interviewer got kind of awkward and he's just like, well, what do you think the answer is? And Brady could only respond by saying, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Some of you, like Brady, have been searching for happiness your whole life. Comedy, sex, drugs, money, accomplishments. It's not working. And you came in the day and you think, man, I wish I knew where I could find happiness. I wish I knew where I could find contentment, where I could find joy. And fortunately for us, the most joy-filled, content person to ever live shows us how we can experience it. In Matthew chapter 16, we'll look here very quickly and we'll be done. Jesus is talking, and he's telling us the secret to happiness. If you're already happy, you feel good, you don't have to listen to this verse. But for those of us in here, maybe you feel a little bit empty, unfulfilled, discontent, I would listen. Here's Jesus' formula for happiness. Chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever will lose their life for me will find it. Let me just stop right there and say this. In an age of self-fulfillment, Does this not just seem like the craziest verse you've ever heard in your life? Does that not just seem crazy, what Jesus just said? 
We are living in a culture right now where most of us in the room cannot fathom a vision of the good life that does not involve me getting what I want when I want. We can't even fathom that. As the professor psychologist Robert C. Roberts put it, he says, just as in earlier times it was never thought, it was never thought fitting to deny God, now it never feels right in America to deny oneself. This is just the air we're breathing. And yet, according to Jesus, he says, hey, you want to live life to the fullest? You want to be happy? You want to find true joy, true contentment? Here's the secret. Listen, it doesn't come through self-fulfillment, but self-denial. Verse 24, again, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And if you're like, that's a tough sell. Why would I ever do that? Because verse 25, whoever loses their life for my sake will find life. And the key word there, guys, is will. That's a promise. Whoever loses their life will in me find life. And that's what we're all longing for today. We want to live. I do. Anybody else angry about life? Like, man, I'm passionate about this. I don't want to just survive. I want to live. Like, I want happiness. I want joy. I want contentment. I don't want to just like, I'm just trying to get through life, man. Maybe one day I'll die and get to heaven. Like, no, I, I want to be happy now. I want joy now. I want life now. And Jesus says, I want you to have it too. But you're going to have to be willing to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow me. As we come to a close today, as I see it, we have two options before us and only two. We're at a fork in the road right now. Everybody in here, we think we're all leaving through that door, but we're actually leaving on one of two paths. It's the path of Ecclesiastes 2. If it looks good, it feels good, it tastes good, that's, that's what I'm going to run after. Look, man, I'm telling you, the world's telling you, like, that's what you need to be happy. Solomon says, I've already been down that road, and I'm telling you, you don't want to go there. Or the option is rather than following Ecclesiastes 2 for happiness, follow the formula that Jesus lays out for us in Matthew 16. In other words, you got two, two options today. Here it is. Here's how we're leaving today, every single one of us. It's either deny Jesus and follow self, or it's to deny self and follow Jesus. That's the two options. There's only two. There's not a third option. And you need to know that if you choose to deny self and follow Jesus. Again, what is the promise from Jesus himself? You're going to have to learn to say no to a lot of the stuff that the world's saying yes to. You're going to have to say no to a lot of the stuff that your friends are saying yes to, your coworkers are saying yes to, some of your family is saying yes to, but here's the promise from Jesus. It is through a thousand small deaths to self that you can experience one massive life that is in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. You see, the problem today, please hear me, we're done. Guys, hear me. The problem is not that we want to pursue pleasure. Like, this is not a, like, don't pursue pleasure message. Like, God made us for pleasure. He wants us to pursue pleasure. Have you ever thought about this? God gave us taste buds. He didn't have to do that. Like, why didn't he just make us like cars that go to the gas station and get filled up? Or why didn't he make us like cows and we just like walk around like chewing on grass? 
Why did he give us this wide variety of foods and then taste buds to enjoy it? Because he's a good, good God who wants you to have pleasure. Why did God make sex the way that he made it? Let's just get real. He, if, if, if sex is just about procreation, that's all we're doing, right? My parents only had sex two times whenever kids were born. Like, that's it, right? Like, just procreation, right? That's all we're about. If that's all that sex is about, why did God make it enjoyable? Why? Why, why, didn't that just, why isn't that just like what, the way animals do it, right? Why is it pleasurable? Because God is a good God. He loves to see his kids happy. He loves for you to have pleasure. He enjoys seeing you happy more than you enjoy seeing your own kids happy. He loves it. The problem today is not our pursuit of pleasure. The problem is that we have begun to think that we can ultimately be satisfied by the pleasures that are under the sun rather than looking to the ultimate pleasure that's found beyond the sun. And this is what C.S. Lewis says better than I could ever say it. He says the following. Listen, then we'll be done. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You're far too easily pleased. Some of you today are settling for mud pies when there's a vacation at sea. You're settling for these little lesser pleasures that ultimately point you to the God who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And so the call today is just simply this as we end. It's to come to Jesus and to place yourself under his authority, to bring him your emotions, to bring him your dreams, to bring him your desires, to bring him your budget, to bring him your calendar, to bring him your future, and to lay it all at the cross to deny yourself, to lose yourself so that in Jesus you can find the happiness and the wholeness that you have been longing for. To help us get there today, we're going to partake of communion. Before you shuffle around and pull back the film on that, here's what I want you to think about as you partake of the bread, which represents the perfect life of Jesus, and as you take the juice, which represents his blood shed for you. Hear this, guys, please, and we're done. Jesus didn't just die for you so that you could have salvation. Jesus didn't just die for you so you can have salvation. He died for you so that you can also have satisfaction. He died for you because he knows that he alone is the one who can satisfy you. And so what does he do? He sends Jesus Christ to come and pave the way. And when Jesus comes to this earth, in order to give you the salvation and the satisfaction you're longing for, he lived a life where he denied himself over and over and over. He didn't live for himself. He lived for his father. Every single temptation that Solomon pursued, Jesus was also tempted by, and yet he rejected. And of the ultimate act of self-sacrifice after living a perfect sinless life we could never live he goes to the cross and he died on the cross for your sins and for my sins so that no matter what we have done we can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with God who alone can give us what the world has failed to give you that's the good news of the gospel and if you are a Christian I want to invite you to partake of communion take that little piece of bread into you take that that juice versus the blood of Christ into you 
And ask God, ask the Spirit to afresh, to, to fill you with the truth that the gospel is not just true news, but it's good news. It's good news of great joy. If you were here today and you are not a Christian, man, I'm so glad that you're here. In some ways, I'm a little bit more excited you're here than even the members of the church. If you have questions about God, if you have questions about any of this stuff, you're wrestling with, like, I don't even know if I believe, I don't know what I believe, whatever, would love to talk with you. I would love to connect with you. If you're here today and you're like, man, clearly I have been looking to other things in the world to do for me what now I believe only Jesus can do, then my call to you today would be this. Don't take communion, take Jesus. Receive Christ. Surrender fully to him, not just your afterlife. Don't just say, I want Jesus to be a ticket to get me out of hell. Look to him as a treasure chest of joy, as the one who alone can give you what nothing in the world can give you. And if you're here and you're like, I want more information about that, like I want that kind of relationship with God, again, I'd love to connect with you, and I know we have other members in our church who'd be happy to process with you as well.